Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Jay, were you sure to uh, beware the Ides of March? We just passed them. Oh, that's a good one, Tom. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sort of get it. But <laughs> well, you, am I the only English major who knows the uh, Ides of March is, uh, you know, when Julius Caesar was warned? Well, between the two of us, you are the only English major, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Well, then I will shift away from the Ides of March okay. quickly, and I will switch over to the Madness of March oh. with overrated, underrated. Jay? You're a sports fan. I don't know how big of a basketball fan you are, but March Madness, overrated or underrated? Um, you know, shoot, that's a good one. Because, I mean, I if I think about it in my own experience, um, I, I'll say underrated, but just for me in the sense that it used to be so fundamental to like how I'd spend my March, you know, when I was yeah. younger, so obsessed with it. Um, and, and you know, we're fortunate in Michigan. I'm some, I'm a little bit unique in the sense that I kind of, root for both Michigan and Michigan State, especially as it relates to basketball. Love the Fab Five. Love mm-hmm. the Michigan State teams. The, the Flintstones. Yeah, Mateen Cleves and, and the rest of them. Um, and and Tom Izzo. And so, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I miss like having that same passion for it that I used to have and being able to, I guess, partly driven by the time to actually get to know the players, watch more games during the regular season and get excited about it. However, um, I did uh, my my oldest daughter Maddie is uh, in fifth grade, and one of the one of the kids in her class started a bracket, you know, for them mm-hmm. to participate in. And she's like, "What's a bracket?" You know, so mm-hmm. so I did get to kind of relive some of the experience that went through picking all the games with her. And unfortunately, uh, at least as of like the first couple of days, uh, Dad's counsel was horrible, so we were <laughs> we were at the bottom. But then we made a miraculous comeback, and we're now in third. Um, and, and charging fast. So we're, oh, we're nice. definitely pretty, definitely pretty pumped about it and looking forward to, uh, you know, I, we, and, and we picked, you'll be happy about this time. We picked Michigan to win it all. So nice. Well, yeah. I didn't even pick Michigan to win it all, but it's the one thing Jay that I miss about, um, a traditional office environment in a big corporation mm-hmm. is the office pools. Yep. Um, because you could, you know, sit around at lunchtime in the cafeteria and have your debates and, you know, follow the, the progress and who's winning and all of that stuff, sneak out on a Friday with the client lunch, quote unquote, client lunch at noon, which just yep. happens to be when your favorite team is playing. So, yep. uh, I miss all that stuff. So to me, it's like, it's becoming underrated because like you, I remember growing up and it was like, it consumes my March, but it could consume this entire podcast if we let it, but maybe we <laughs> should not. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess that's, we're not a sports podcast, are we? As, no. as some listeners have reminded us in the past, yes, but we're willing to keep taking risks. Right. Well, so what should we be talking about today? Um, well, I thought we would talk about kind of something fundamental to, to marketing, um, and it, I think it's something that I know, you know, we've talked about this in the past time where you know, good podcast episodes uh, arise from and, and good content of any form arise from questions we keep getting over and over from clients or issues we have to continue to kind of hammer home with clients that are sort of fundamental to you know, marketing as a whole. And, and certainly one of those is this notion of identifying your ideal client and why that matters. Um, so, so yeah, I thought we could dive into that today. And frankly, I, I'll share, um, I, I'm in the middle of reading Seth Godin's new book, The Practice, which is excellent and recommend it to everyone, um, regardless of, of you know, what your work is. But 
uh, he has a, it's, it's consists of essentially, he calls them chapters, but they're short, you know, almost like blog posts, each one. And there's like 200 some chapters in the book. Um, one of them is uh, titled the best reason to say no. And um, he, he starts by saying the following, he says, writer, uh, writer Justine Musk reminds us that in order to say no with co consistency and generosity, we need to have something to say yes to. And mm. I think that, you know, marketing is is largely an exercise of saying no right it's narrowing down to the point that you have your target market identified and the type of services you provide for that marketplace all for the purpose of being able to position yourself effectively to that target market and and that so that's why i think it really circles back to this idea of ideal client where i you know ultimately whether it's you actually saying no to a prospect that's coming to you um, because they're not the right fit, you're saying no to them, or um, even better, positioning yourself through your marketing, through your thought leadership content, et cetera, just making clear to the marketplace that you're not for everyone, right? But you are for a very specific type of client for a very specific reason. And that's when you can really get uh, to be really effective with your marketing and, and use that at, at, to develop a, a profitable legal practice where you're essentially, you know, sending those signals out to the marketplace where I'm not for you, but I am for, you know, these folks or these businesses. And, and essentially you're building that tribe and you're positioning yourself as an expert, a confident expert who knows who they serve and not someone who is just a generalist who tries to serve everyone. So I thought, you know, I thought about this when I was reading that little um, snippet from, from Godin's book, which was, it, it really is um, the ability to, the ability to effectively say no, which is critical, um, really does uh, kind of harken back to this notion of what is your overarching strategy? You need to have something to say yes to. And oftentimes that's really having a clear understanding of who your ideal client is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And a couple of things come to mind. Obviously, as you've often said, doing this will make the marketing easier, but there's also an economic driver. You sent me last week a link to a podcast episode uh, the podcast was the two Bobs. You know, neither one of them are named Bob. Who is it again on that podcast? Uh, it's uh, Blair Enns, who is a kind of a sales consultant for creative agencies. He has a company called Win Without Pitching. And then David C. Baker, who we had on the show a few months back, um, who is also a consultant in the creative services, in creative services uh, world and, and to agencies in our space. Yeah. In the episode that you sent me specifically was talking about what they call these profit bands, which are, let's for layman's terms, sort of tiers of profitability. And what they argued and reinforced, uh, because um, Mr. Baker on our podcast said it plainly, that to the extent that you can create and, and focus on a niche is going to drive up your fees because you are exclusive to an industry, you're going to be perceived as the venerable expert in this industry. Uh, and those types of professionals command higher premiums, higher fees. So um, not only are you doing yourself a favor, you know, in terms of your marketing, but you're also doing your pocketbook a favor uh, potentially. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we could start at the beginning and, and try to understand what it means to, you know, define your ideal client. Seems like the right job, jumping off point there, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, you know, th this, this whole exercise, again, it really relate, does relate closely to having a niche, meaning serving someone, not everyone, and mm -hmm. really understanding who you're trying to reach. So in, in, in the case of, um, you know, an, 
a lawyer developing a, a legal practice, you know, thinking about what are the profitable um, types of work that you do? Uh, what are the types of work that you enjoy? Um, what is the size of the addressable market that you could be servicing? Um, and what, where do future opportunities, uh, uh, where, where are the opportunities for, for future growth in your practice, such that you're organizing your marketing and business development in those areas and being very strategic about doing so. Um, so that, that will help you narrow down uh, really where you're, you're focusing, you know, a little bit more broadly. And then once you kind of identify those parameters, thinking, you know, even more narrowly about the, the very types of clients, more from like even a demographic and psychographic standpoint about what clients do you enjoy interacting and working with? I mean, we've all had the experience of having a poor fit client. And in almost all instances, when I can think back about that experience, both practicing law and now doing consulting work, you tend to have a, a bit of a gut intuition before taking on work as to whether or not that's going to be an ideal fit or poor fit client. And if you can start to identify those patterns from past experience and connect those dots, you can probably make better decisions in the future as a result of that. So that might be, um, you know, working, some, some lawyer might decide, well, I only really want to work with um, companies that have an a corporate legal department. You know, I'm looking to work with bigger companies because that's just, they can support the fees I have to offer. They offer the types of sophisticated work that I'm doing. Um, there's not as much handholding involved because, you know, I'm, I'm not dealing with someone who doesn't understand sort of the basic notions of what it's like to work with a lawyer. You know, that might be an example of that where you're essentially, you're having to make some decisions in, off, in some cases, tough choices where you're narrowing down the types of clients that you're going to serve as a result of that. And, and, and that, you know, as we'll get into in more detail, as we, as we move through the episode, that has all kinds of implications down the road for things like your marketing and your business development. Yeah. So this whole topic, as you just presented it, we could lump this under the category category of know whom to market to, or know to whom to market, however you want to say it, but knowing thy market is, it, and the way you just described it is really threefold. So it's one is uh, the niche, maybe the industry niche or maybe a practice niche. So um, whom do you serve categorically? Two is then I think um, you should identify what is the type of work for which you're most profitable and that you can get into your flow state. We talked about flow state. So the work that you do that seems easy, but also kind of invigorates you because I think there's also in addition to profit margin, there's like the sort of um, work commitment margin that if you're only have to tax yourself so much to make X amount of profit, like that gap between a client like that versus a client where you have to do a ton of work just to bill an hour. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a huge disparity there. And then the third one, like you said, I think it's really important is to create a, a psychographic profile of the client. At my former agency, we had a rule that we put in writing and it was no egos. Um, I know of a law firm in Metro Detroit where their rule is more explicit. It's no a-holes. Um, but you have to describe and define what that is because those are the ones that are mentally taxing. Those are the ones that you take home to the family, right? When you take it out, you're in a bad mood because someone bullied you and then you, you know, pay that forward in a bad way to your family. You don't have room in your life for those or you shouldn't. So those are the three ways I would slice the know who to market category. Yeah. The, and oh, go ahead, Tom. Sorry. No, go ahead. Oh yeah. And I was just going to add on to that. And, and just to, you know, recognize that you know we're, we're living in the real world, not the ideal world. I mean, ultimately you wanna be working only with ideal clients. Uh, for everyone, their journeys 
obviously going to be different. I mean, everyone's circumstances are such that we, we have instances oftentimes when we're maybe feeling like things are slow at work or, you know, what, for whatever reason, we're having a bit of a scarcity mindset moment. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're going to take on those clients. It's, it's really an evolution over time where, you know, you're going to be hoping, hopefully moving towards working more for ideal clients over time. But there's going to be instances where we're all going to work with poor fit clients. And that, that's a learning experience, though, not to, not to um, you know, make that same mistake twice or at least too often. Uh, and, and it does really get back to this idea that if you, but if you don't have an overarching strategy that you're, you're, you're working towards, you will have a tendency, I, I think, more often than not to say yes to every opportunity. Um, whereas if you have that strategy in place, you will say yes more often to the right types of clients. Yeah, absolutely. And it starts with just two steps, maybe is Gino Wickman called it the dirty dozen list, put the bad poor clients on a list and just recognize that you have them. And you're like, okay, these are the ones I would replace in a real world. The step that we just took now saying identifying the ideal client is a step on the path to having a very sound business development structure that is lucrative and reaps rewards. So you're bringing in ideal clients, probably at the expense of the dirty dozen list. So the more effective you become at getting the right clients, the easier it is to start pruning away some of that. Well, let's move on to the category, the second category. Now that we know who to market to, the second maybe big chunk to bite off is knowing what to say. Yeah, right. I mean, you once you know who you are marketing to, um, then marketing itself becomes a whole lot easier in terms of essentially we can boil down to like, what is the story we're trying to tell, right? Um, we can contextualize the marketing communications we're creating and even the, having the business development conversations that we're engaging in um, in, a much, in, in a way that appeals to a much greater extent to our ideal client audience. So again, instead of you know, making watering down your marketing communications to the point where they become relevant to everyone, um, you are, you're making them irrelevant to a large number of people, but as a result of that, making them much more resonant and effective with the very group of potential clients that you're trying to communicate to. So that's the point where you want to get to where um, it's, again, this signaling to much of the marketplace, look, I'm not for you, but I'm for this very group that I've, I've perceived and I've identified as my ideal client audience. So, so you know what to say, you speak their language, you, you know, we, we oftentimes talk about not using legal jargon and, you know, sort of playing inside baseball when it comes to creating content for clients, but if you have an ideal client within a specific industry, for example, then you can use more of the language of, that that audience speaks. And it's okay if you are using a little bit of, of industry jargon or, or inside speak, because then that signals that you understand that, that demographic, their job, um, the industry they're participating in. And all of those are things that clients desire. I mean, every survey of clients, uh, especially in, in you know, business clients, the, the number one response back to the question of what are you looking for most in your lawyer? It always comes back a deep understanding of my business and industry. And it's only by identifying your ideal client and maybe narrowing your focus a bit that you can actually communicate that you do have that deep understanding. Right. Yeah. I, I think effective marketing language always starts with articulating the prospect's pain Sometimes aspirations is good too, but understanding that you are demonstrating that you understand their pain, I think 
takes a, a goes a long way to validating your expertise. And if that's not genuine, meaning you don't know what the pain points are, you're going to speak in generalities and you're going to hope that you're hitting the hot buttons when you're probably missing them. So I think the more specific you get about addressing the pain points in your marketing language, then when a prospect happens upon your marketing, they say, aha, this person gets me. I'm in the right place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're this person's for me. Like it's a, it's a moment of relief as opposed to, you don't, you don't feel like you're being pitched to anymore. You're like, Oh wow. There's actually someone out there who is, is, you know, speaking my language and understands what I'm going through and, and ostensibly can help me solve the problems I'm facing. And, and that's not oftentimes the case, a place you get to that often when you're marketing, but you can, when you have really have an ideal client in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And we get the question a lot, even as a marketing firm, we're not a law firm, but we're a marketing firm that if we're going into, say, a new business opportunity, we almost always get the question, do you have any experience in our industry? And even for law firms might even ask it very you know, narrowly, do you have experience with this kind of law firm? So it's great when you can say, not only do we have experience, that's all we do. Right. And mm-hmm. that, I think, immediately puts the prospect at ease that, OK, well, this is at least worth having a conversation. Right. For sure. And, you know, and, and, and that doesn't always happen though. Right. I mean, it is, there are instances where a client might be like, well, oh, we're looking for someone that doesn't, you know, we want, we want something unique or whatever. And that's okay. You know, again, we're not for everyone. No one is for everyone. It's just an understanding that if you, if you, there are far more clients out there who will appreciate that you have that experience and that focus what you're doing than, than those who won't. So, um, you know, if you, if you decide never to really narrow down, then you're never going to have that, that kind of um, real connection with your prospective clients that you will, if you, if you do um, have, have an ideal client in mind from the start. Yep. In terms of knowing what to say, did we already cover this, Jay? But one thing I, I hear you say a lot, in like in your LinkedIn trainings, for example, when you're coaching somebody, you know, the finer points of the about section or their profile, you say, tell, tell the prospect's story to the reader. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Tell them their story. Yeah, right. It's like holding a mirror back up to them. It's for that same uh, reason you were just describing, which is, you know, they have that instant connection that you get them, so to speak. So, so what you're trying to do there is just really um, create a shared understanding of the challenges and opportunities that they're facing. So when they're reading your profile, they're, they're seeing themselves in the story you're telling where it's like, you know, I, you know, you're, you, and you really oftentimes are telling a story. You're like, you know, clients face this issue, then that issue. Uh, they, you know, they're they're struggling with this question and to overcome this challenge. And and the person who's reading that, who's you know, it's it's like you're standing in their shoes, and they're they're having that instant association with you uh, as as someone who gets them, and and as a result of that, likely has the path forward to help them get through the issues that they're facing. Um, Whereas again, if you're not if you're not telling them their own story back to them, they're not going to really resonate with what you have to say. All you can do at that point really is rely on your credentials um, as your means of differentiation, and that's not all that differentiating at all. Right. Well, yeah, the instinct I think is to. I actually, it's funny you brought up the mirror thing because I wrote a, a blog post saying it's, instead of um, a window, hold up mm-hmm. a, a mirror to the to the listener, user, reader, whatever it might be. But the instinct is to talk about ourselves, right? Because it's saying, you know, LinkedIn is asking you in the example of LinkedIn, tell me about yourself. So we tell LinkedIn about ourselves when really what we want to do is we want to, like you said, picture your ideal client, which again goes back to why it's so important to identify who that is. 
picture your ideal clients coming upon your website or coming to your LinkedIn profile, what do you want them to read both as a first impression and as a takeaway? And if you, if you couch it that way, then the, all of the instinct to talk about your, you know, your accomplishments and your bona fides and your practice areas, all that goes away and you're real, you're authentically connecting with the person who's happened upon your marketing. Yeah. I, I, Donald Miller, who, uh, started written the book story brand and has a consulting firm um, in in this space uh, he, he talks about it he t- equates everything back to storytelling and and the hero's journey where yep. you know the um that your client is is the hero of their own story right that's how we all perceive mm-hmm. ourselves um who's got some unique challenges uh he's trying he or she is trying to overcome something and and you as the lawyer um are serving as the guide in that story so it's the the Yoda to Luke Skywalker, or um, you know, the Mr. Miyagi to uh, the Karate <laughs> Kid, um, and where th- that you know that that guide is is really helping them see future possibilities and get them to where they want to go. Um, but you are the, you are not the hero of the story as the service provider. You're the guide, and your job is to make your prospective client feel like as the hero of their own story. There's a path forward, and you're part of that story. I wish you would have just added your Burgess Meredith to Rocky. And I can't remember what Burgess <laughs> Meredith, what was his, was it just coach? I don't remember what his, his character's name uh, was. Mickey? Is that Mickey, it? yes, Mickey, yeah, right, yes. He's the right, guy. That's, that's a good one, yep, yep, that's a good, that's a perfect example of that. All right, well, now that we know what to say, let's move on to the next big categorical leap, which is then knowing where to market. Yeah, so this one, this one really falls into place, and uh, we, we've talked about this issue before. But basically, it's really hard to know how to market effectively if if you don't have an ideal client in mind, because your ideal client uh, there's some there's some place or places where that client uh, is is spending its his or her or its time and attention, um, and and you as the as the lawyer trying to develop business need to be able to immerse yourself in the environment or the ecosystem in which your your client is is spending its time and attention. So this an example of this would be, you know, let's say that you are targeting a particular industry. Well, there's trade associations that probably are are established to serve that industry. There are websites, there are podcasts, there are um, all kinds of uh, journals and publications that all gear themselves towards that particular industry. And if you want to be in front of your ideal client audience, you need to be in in those in those meetings, in those events, in those pages, on those podcasts, whatever the case might be, in order to again be seen as a well, a to get 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 the opportunity to appear in the first place. Because if you're just some generalist who's trying to pitch yourself for being on a webinar panel for an industry, well, you're not going to have a whole lot of luck if you don't have any um, already established reputation in that industry. But also to have anything interesting to say that's worthy of, of people in that industry listening to or, or reading in the first place, um, because you know you'll if if you if you are focused in that area, you'll you'll have a real understanding of um, you know you have your finger on the pulse of what's happening, and as a result, you'll be able to create interesting content and develop interesting insights. Um, so knowing where to market becomes possible only by really having a clear understanding of who you're marketing to. And this translates all the way to LinkedIn, doesn't it? Because, you know, we make no secrets that our ideal client is, 
you know, an attorney or a law firm or marketing legal marketer. But um, I would say even more specifically, the ones that embrace thought leadership as a means to develop reputation awareness in business development. Yep. Those are the people that we want to connect with. So um, I both intentionally will go out and try to connect with those types of people. But now LinkedIn, because of its algorithm, has sort of figured me out. And now I'm actually authentically in this sort of network within the network. And now I'm only really being served up content um, through those types of connections. So I, who knows how many connections I have, but I would say only maybe 40% of them are attorneys. But I would say 90% of my content that I'm interacting with on a daily basis is again, intentionally and also being served up to me is from these lawyers who are active on the platform. They believe in thought leadership marketing and they're doing a ton of content and they're having a great conversation. So knowing the ideal client will authentically and organically create this ecosystem around yourself that now it's a target rich environment. And I you know, don't mean to mm-hmm. speak so bluntly, but that's kind of what you want to create, right? Totally. I mean, you, you, it, Yes, I mean talking of LinkedIn specifically, we, we always talk about the fact that it's it's not 750 million people just swimming in this vast ocean that where there's no hierarchy to it. It's it's really a bunch of individual silos where people with shared interests and shared demographics in some respects in terms of job titles and industries are are gathering and connecting with one another. So it's all these webs that are interconnected, but distinct in a way. Like our algorithms or our feeds probably look very similar, Tom, because we're connected with the same people. We're interacting with the same types of content. And that might seem myopic to some, but not if this is our very ideal client audience. In that sense, it's great. And everyone, everyone can do the same on LinkedIn and elsewhere. Again, it all getting, talk about, the difference between being seen as a trusted uh, insider who's welcomed into the party, as opposed to just someone who's seen as, you know, sort of transparently pitching to people and just coming in and just trying to sell and then going on to the next group or whatever the case might be. Being generous, being consistent, being active, being authentic, all of these things matter um, greatly when it comes to marketing and business development. And you can only do that if you are interacting with similar types of people on a consistent basis. Yep. And I will say it with all sincerity and humility, I feel like this network of attorneys has welcomed me in. I'm not an attorney and I could be perceived as someone who's just trying to pitch them, thankfully, and hopefully I do not, but I'm having these great conversations. I'm learning so much too from attorneys. And I think that's another benefit. It's just the learning opportunities you get by staying focused. Um, I, I don't think I would have this kind of deep understanding of what motivates an attorney had I not you know, just stayed focused on this is who I am. This is who I uh, want to interact with. This is who I want to get to know. And um, I didn't have to work nearly as hard as I thought I did to, to, mm-hmm. to get an understanding of what motivates them. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it can happen. It can happen quicker than you think. And, but it, but to your point, it, it did require some intention, certainly Tom, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you had to, um, you had to kind of dive in and, and it takes a little time, not as much time as you think, but it right. does take a little time. And, and it's like anything, you, you know, the, uh, the familiarity you breed by showing up more frequently and, and again, creating content and marketing for a particular group of people allows them to grow to trust you and, and welcome you in over time. Well, you said familiarity breeds, and I think that expression ends with the word contempt. So hopefully yeah. <laughs> I'm going to avoid uh, the familiarity breeding contempt. But yes, in, in, you know, going back to knowing what to say, 
I try to legitimately bring value. I, hopefully I don't come across as I'm pitching my wares. If you do that, if you intentionally and you legitimately bring value, whatever market you're trying to get into will, will receive you with open arms. I can all but guarantee it. Yep, absolutely. Um, all right. Well, I think hopefully that gives some people uh, you know, a framework to think about why having an ideal client in mind matters. And you know, it's not to say that you'll never deviate outside of that you know, ideal client you've identified. But again, getting back to the first point we made, um, it, it provides you the ability to say yes to uh, the right types of clients and, and say no to the wrong ones on a more consistent basis if you have an overarching strategy in mind. Yep. And I'll maybe just offer this quick exercise that may help. And just all it requires is about 10 minutes of your time and a pen and a paper. And at the top of the paper, write down the actual name of the person who you deem to be your ideal client. So that's Jeff Jones, say. And then start just describing not why why he's ideal or she's ideal, whoever the client's going to be. Just start describing that person. What do they do for a living? How big of a firm do they work at? What practice area do they uh, adhere to? What is it about their personality that makes you click with them? And I think if you get a list of about 15 to 20 attributes to Jeff, in my example, you'll start to have a a barometer by which you're going to measure the ideal client fit. So uh, we Mm -hmm. used to do that exercise a lot to identify uh, core values of our team. And we would use real people, real people and real attributes. And when you describe someone that way, I think it's less ethereal and and, and it's more real. So that's my tip. Good tip. Good tip. All right. Well, uh, anything else, Tom, you wanted to wrap up with? I would just like to wish your daughter good luck in the pool. Um, yeah. At the inaugural March Madness pool. Hopefully she will uh, become addicted and you guys will have a good father-daughter bonding moment for years to come. Yeah, we can watch more basketball. So That's right. It's always That's a right. bonus. So. All right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining and we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Thought Leadership Project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com.